This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the final paragraph of chapter 5 in a section commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains how the Pharisees had corrupted the law to create an externally focused view of righteousness. And this week, we'll continue to uncover their warped views of conflict that led many astray. While the Pharisees distorted the law regarding conflict, they really just reflected the human viewpoint, common even today. We are naturally vindictive, exclusive, and eager to care only about those that love us. But Jesus calls his followers to a higher standard. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Well, today we're going to continue to study the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We have come to the last paragraph of chapter 5. And let me remind you, these are very challenging words, not because they're hard to understand, but because they clearly confront our sinful nature, our tendency to hate and to retaliate and to deviate from the divine standard of forgiveness, meekness, and lowliness. And when we come to a resolution of conflicts from a personal level, not we're not talking about a national war situation here. We're talking about person-to-person conflict. When we come to issues like this, we are faced with pressure from the inside, our own vindictive heart, and pressure from outside, a godless society who wants nothing to do with God's way of dealing with conflict. But when we embrace the world's standard for conflict resolution... We might as well tell God, I have a better plan than you. You are too soft and too slow. I must take matters into my own hands. And church, can you think of anything more blasphemous and arrogant than this? Thank God we have access to his standard here that Jesus clearly reveals in the pages of the Word of God, more relevant than today's news. And in the last paragraph of chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew, starting in verses 43 all the way through verse 48, Jesus teaches subjects of the kingdom of heaven and how to respond to injuries and insults. We started this last week, and now it's part two of that. Again, we need to understand that he is talking about interpersonal conflict, not national conflict. Otherwise, we, if we miss this, we run the risk of concocting an unbiblical theory of pacifism. That's not the case that Jesus wants to show us here. So with that in mind, if you have your Bibles with you, let's read Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. And that passage says this. These are the words of Christ. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In church, that's how Jesus presents to us the precepts here of the majestic Savior concerning specifically how subjects of the kingdom of heaven are to deal with conflict. All of us face conflict, interpersonal conflict from time to time. If you're part of a family, 
you have conflict. If you are part of a church, you face conflict from time to time. If you work somewhere with other people, you face conflict from time to time. The only reason you would not have any conflict is if you live by yourself in a mountain somewhere and you would still have conflict with animals. And in verse 43, what we have here is, first of all, the assumption. Jesus exposes an assumption of the time. That's point number one of your outline. And following his pattern in the discourse so far, he addresses the assumption of the day concerning the misunderstanding of the Old Testament. He exposes the scribes and Pharisees and their convoluted way of dealing with the Old Testament. They misrepresented Old Testament truth. So the opening sentence in the paragraph here, he takes his listeners back to verse 21. Let me remind you of that verse in chapter 5. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. So you should draw a line between verse 43 and verse 21 in your Bibles there because they are connected. And Jesus clarifies in verse 21 that unjustified anger produces murder in the heart. So that's the point here when he says, you heard what it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, we already know that hating anyone is a sin. It's the same thing as murder in the heart. And therefore, Christ goes back to that issue here and he elaborates on that. And by quoting the wrong teaching from the Pharisees, Jesus accuses, therefore, the hypocritical teachers of his day, and he uses them as an example of what he talks about in verse 19. Go ahead and draw a line between those two verses again, verse 43 and verse 19, because verse 19 says, Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were following ancient tradition of annulling, or at least a Attempting to annul biblical truth by subtracting from and adding to Scripture. And this is how they did that. Listen to the unadulterated command from the Old Testament regarding vengeance, regarding how we should deal with conflicts. Leviticus 19 verses 17 through 18 says this, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So very clear. And what Jesus is pointing out to the people of this day is, you are subtracting from Scripture. First of all, you are omitting the clause that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Did you catch that? Verse 43, Jesus says, well, you believe in the following tradition. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, the hating your enemy is not a part of the command in Leviticus, or therefore they are, first of all, omitting the part that says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And thus, the religious leaders of the time modified Scripture to accommodate their own fleshly desire and evil hearts because of their desire to hate and their desire to hold grudges against their brothers and sisters. That's exactly what they're doing, and for that reason, they conveniently left out the part from the Old Testament that says you shall love your neighbor as self. Now, removing from Scripture is nothing new. Unfortunately, the practice has been passed through the generations. Here's an extreme example. Apparently, Thomas Jefferson didn't like the portions of the Bible that included the supernatural, particularly the miracles of Christ. So he decided to cut them with a razor blade and rearrange the contents to form the volume called The Life and Morals of Jesus, also known as the Jefferson Bible. Now, we may not cut the Bible with a razor blade today. We're not as barbaric, we would say. We're a little more sophisticated. We simply ignore the portions of the Bible that are inconvenient for us because they confront our flesh. And we like the other portions of the Bible that tell us how great we are or the portions of the Bible that tell us that God loves us. Let me give you an example. 
Usually, we don't have a problem with 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, which says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Oh, I love that verse. All of us are ready to embrace that, and we want that, and we appreciate the Bible when it says this. But let me share with you an equally inspired verse that confronts our sin. And then that's the one that bothers us. For example, Luke 14, verse 26, equally inspired, says this. These are the words of Christ. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what we do is sometimes we decide to explain away these verses But the better option is to study the words of Christ in their proper context to understand exactly what kind of hatred Jesus is talking about. Specifically because here he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you shall also love your enemy. So look at verse 43 again. According to Christ, not only the corrupt teachers of the time subtract from the Old Testament, but they added another clause. See what they did? They didn't cut the Bible with a razor blade, but they just taught heresy, basically. They added the clause that says, hate your enemy, which, by the way, church, is nowhere found in Scripture. You will not find that sentence in the Bible anywhere that commands you to hate your enemy. So Jesus points out the deficient righteousness of these folks here, the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, he says in verse 20, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot make it to the kingdom of heaven. So he confronts that because that's the kind of righteousness that is deficient and produces nothing of value. It doesn't take people to heaven, which, by the way, this tradition dates way back to the time of the Essenes. You may have heard of the Qumran commune. Those of you who have or those of you who are familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's the community of Jews who lived around that area. They had a codified law that corrupted scripture just like that. And their law was this. One of the points in that law is love the brothers, hate the outsider. Well, that's not in the Bible. That's heresy, folks. And Jesus points that out. And we know exactly where that kind of heresy comes from, do we not? Hating one's enemy It's not from the Bible. It's an assumption from Satan, the father of all lies, a murderer from the beginning. It's something that is perpetuated by our society, who once again, nothing to do with God's way of dealing with conflicts and promotes vindictiveness in vengeful hearts. And it's promoted by a sinful pride because that's what our natural inclination is. We need to remember this. Our natural inclination is to hate our enemy or to hate somebody who has done wrong to us. Not even that, or to hold a grudge against our fellow believer. Precisely what Leviticus 19 verses 17 through 18 says, you are not to do this. You are not to hold grudges. So we need to understand this very clearly, church. If you're holding a grudge against someone, you are violating scripture. You're not supposed to do that. If you love the Lord, you're supposed to bring that before him and say, Lord, clean my heart. I want nothing to do with a non-biblical philosophy of conflict resolution, because that's what Jesus Christ is pointing out here. But we are to do that in a very specific way. And we do this by loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's what Leviticus 19, verses 17 through 18, the purity of the word of God. So Jesus is contrasting the corruption of man with the purity of the word of God. And according to the purity of the word of God, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So if you're interested in honoring that command from Leviticus 19, we have to ask ourselves two questions. And we'll answer them together here. Two questions. The first one is this. How do you love yourself? Let's take inventory here. Let's think clearly. How do you love yourself? Well, let me suggest a few things. You seek your highest good, do you not? 
You meet your own needs first. You feed yourself and you clothe yourself before anybody else. You're willing to die for your rights. And you're willing to sacrifice for your comfort. You preserve your own dignity. You pursue your own dreams. You speak well of yourself. Well, you never assume your intentions are evil. You overlook your own transgressions and you give yourself the benefit of the doubt. You desire your own restoration and you are quick to proclaim your own innocence. Church, that's how we love ourselves. We seek our highest good and we seek the best for ourselves. Now, what the Bible says here, what the command from the Old Testament is, and Jesus points that out very clearly, we are to take that pattern, that standard, and apply it to our neighbor. Well, how would we do that? We just flip-flop that. Simply, according to the standard set forth and exemplified by Jesus, we do this. We seek somebody else's highest good. We meet his needs. We die for her rights. We sacrifice for his comfort. We seek somebody else's highest good, like I said earlier. We preserve your neighbor's dignity. You pursue her dreams. You speak well of her and be quick to forgive him. Never assume your neighbor's intentions are evil. Overlook his transgressions. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Desire the restoration of your neighbor's dignity and presume his innocence. That's how you love others like you love yourself. You care for others like you care for yourself. But you'll say, Pastor, I'm good because I already do that for my family. Well, great. You're doing better than the rest of us. But let's see what Scripture says if, to see if the Bible warrants limitation of the word neighbor to family and friends only. Let's do that. And in order to do that, we need to ask the second question. So the first question is, how do we love ourselves in order to understand how we're supposed to love our neighbors? We answered that already. Now, the second one is, who is our neighbor? We need to know who is to be the object of our love like we love self. Well, a Jewish lawyer once asked Jesus that same question. And the Lord answered him by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're all familiar with that story, a fictitious story. And by the way, the expression Good Samaritan would have been a contradiction in terms for that lawyer because according to Jewish thinking at the time, there were no Good Samaritans. In the fictitious story, the victim of violence here that Jesus presents is simply identified as a man. A man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And Luke tells us this in Luke 10 verse 30. And he quotes Jesus using the term for man, anthropos, from which we get the word anthropology. And without qualification, the guy is simply a man, which gives us the indication that the concept of neighbor cannot be limited to family, friends, and people from the same ethnicity or the person who lives next door, but to everyone who shares the image of God. Anyone who is an image bearer is your neighbor, according to Scripture. In other words, everyone that you will ever meet, every person in the world, your fellow human being, male or female, regardless of skin color, national origin, political persuasion, or even religion. In other words, according to Scripture here, we are not all brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are all brothers and sisters in Adam, are we not? Because we came from the same father, Adam. And therefore, every human being is our neighbor. So everyone who we meet is the object of our love. We are supposed to love that other person as ourselves, according to Scripture, to apply that same intensity of love that we apply to self to everyone we meet and everyone we don't meet. Everyone outside of our circle of influence, the people who we see on TV that disagree with us and so forth. So we can summarize verse 43 like this. In the process of teaching subjects of the kingdom of heaven how to handle conflict, Jesus confronts his audience's omission of the command to love neighbor as self. 
He also accuses these scribes and Pharisees and points out their perversion of the Old Testament law that added an unbiblical command. And that command is you must hate your enemy. Again, church, let me remind you, there is nothing like that in the Bible. You will not find in Scripture any command that says you are to hate your enemy. Quite the opposite. You will find in Scripture uh, clarification on who is the enemy and who is not the enemy. Let me give you a hint. We struggle not against flesh and blood, the Bible says, but against the powers, the principalities, the forces of the spiritual world. In other words, the forces of evil, demons, and Satan, and the kingdom of darkness, not people. So after identifying the assumption in verse 43, Jesus now offers the correction. The correction is in verses 44 through 45. And once again, Jesus contrasts the corrupt teaching of the time with the purity of the word of God. And by doing so, he demands spiritual virtue at the highest level. He's saying here, let me, let me provide to you the example of excellence in serving me. And we already know that excellence in service doesn't mean outside compliance with the law only, but it's a matter of the heart. There is no virtue in merely complying with commands and leaving the heart untouched. We need to understand this. Unless our heart is transformed, our righteousness is not better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And therefore, unless the heart is transformed, we will not make it to heaven, according to Scripture. And according to the standard that Jesus demands here, spiritual virtue at the highest level, we are to treat an enemy as a neighbor. We treat an enemy as a neighbor. And by the way, we've already determined that from our perspective, we don't have any enemies that are human beings. We have persecutors, yes. We have oppressors, yes. We have adversaries, yes. We have people that oppose what we believe in, yes. But we're not enemies. Now, from the perspective of the atheists, for example, we're the enemies because we believe in a lie according to them. From the perspective of the corrupt politicians, we are the enemies because we are intolerant or whatever else they call us these days. But the point is, we don't have enemies that are people. Every human being that you meet is a mission field and needs to be treated with the utmost dignity and your desire to win that person to Christ. So we are to demonstrate the same quality of love that we demonstrate ourselves to our neighbor, first of all. And now Jesus goes even a step further, even to your enemies, even to people who want nothing to do with you, even to people who want to wipe you out of the map. And this is how we do this. Let's apply that same standard that we apply for love of self, right? That we just determined we need to do the same thing for love of neighbor. Let's apply that same standard to our persecutors, And uh, we're going to go through that list again, but this time I'm going to give you all the biblical references so that you don't think this is my idea. Again, I wouldn't do that. You're not interested in my opinions. My opinion is no good. Uh, Only what Scripture says. So here's how we do this. Seek the highest good of your persecutor because according to 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, love does not seek its own. Secondly, meet the needs of your persecutor because Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Die for the rights of your oppressor and sacrifice for his comfort because Philippians 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Be quick to forgive your persecutor because Jesus teaches us to pray like this. Father, forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Matthew 6 verse 12. Also, you overlook the imperfections of your persecutor because according to Proverbs 19 verse 1, the glory of a man is to overlook a transgression. Give her the benefit of the doubt because love does not rejoice in unrighteousness according to 1 Corinthians 13 verse 6. And finally, desire the restoration of your foe. 
and presume her innocence. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 says, love hopes all things. Again, let me remind you, that's the reason why these words are so challenging. Not because they're hard to understand, because they're plain and clear and simple, but they confront our nature. Now, here's the catch on this. Some Christians, quote-unquote, will reject this standard, church. And we need to be aware of that. And they reject the standard and they opt for their own. And when they do this, they're telling God, I have a better plan. You know nothing about relationships. Therefore, I need to add my own wisdom to your deficient, obviously, plan. Can you think of anything more blasphemous than this, church? When we apply a different standard. No, we would never say that to God. We will never be as direct to God as I'm quoting right now, but that's the attitude. And as a result, people who do this, to use biblical language, they suffer shipwreck of their faith. According to 1 Timothy 1, verse 19 in church, I have seen this over and over and over again. People will reject God's standard for conflict resolution. They will opt for their own. And what happens is, a couple of months down the road, they find themselves in a situation of faith crisis because they have made shipwreck of their faith. And some of them leave the church and haven't come back just to demonstrate that they were really never of us, the Bible says. I, I, I know some of these folks. They are bitter. They're filled with resentment and self-pity, and they wallow in their self-righteousness, and nobody's good enough for them, and uh, they create a parallel reality, and in that reality, they are victims of everybody else, rather than to understand that they are perpetrators, according to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if you hate in your heart, you are a murderer. If you look at someone with uh, lust in your heart, you are an adulterer at heart, and therefore you need repentance. So that's the catch, and that's why this is so challenging. The other point, too, is that, my friends, people will reject you when you live by this standard. But listen, remember the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 11, this one specifically. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. See, if people are going to abandon you because of Christ, you are blessed. If people are going to walk away from you and write you off as an enemy because you're trying to apply biblical standard, my friend, you are blessed beyond your ability to compute. I don't like losing friends, but I'd rather stay with the Word of God. And that's, that should be our attitude. And in verse 44 here, Jesus presents another imperative verb, which means it's not an option. It's a command. We are commanded to pray for people who persecute us. Now, persecution here is different for us than it is for our friends and brothers in Christ in China, for example. But yet, we, we still have people who oppose us, people who want nothing more than to close our doors forever, to tell us how bad we are, and then to shame us by writing articles about Christianity and so forth. We are to pray for them, and, and Jesus even demonstrates that. In Luke 23, verse 34, when he interceded on behalf of his executioners. Remember this. When he was being nailed to the cross, it says, Father, lay not their guilt on their account. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, listen to uh, or look at verse 44 with me again. By the way, circle the two words, so that. Let's do that exercise again. Whenever you see those two words in Scripture, you should write a note in the margin of your Bible to say purpose. That indicates purpose. So what we see here, verse 45, that starts with the two words, so that. We need to understand that that's the purpose for which Jesus is giving his argument here. And once again, in order to understand these next words, we need to bring the broader context of Scripture so that we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Because if we do this, we'll be overlooking the context and we will miss by miles 
what Jesus is saying. For example, it says this, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, if you take this and read it casually without attention to the context, you'll say, oh, so becoming a child of God is conditioned upon compliance to this command and nothing's further from the truth. Why? Because the broader context of Scripture tells us otherwise. For example, John 13, verse 35. I'm sorry, go back to John 1, 12. John 1, 12, the prologue of the gospel. John says this, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So we know that becoming a son or a daughter of God doesn't come by performance. It happens by grace through faith for people who believe in Christ and exercise saving faith. Now, when we do this, we become children of God. So what does Christ mean here then when he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven? Now, he's talking about nobility of character. Why? Because God is the highest being there is. He is the most noble with the, the, the most integrity. He's the creator of all of these virtues. And what Christ is saying here, when you do this, you're imitating your Father. You resemble your Father when you do this. Why? Because you're not being selective in the way you love. You love your persecutors as well as your friends. And God the Father does the same thing. He allows people to enjoy sunshine and to enjoy rain. And He doesn't select sunshine and rain to the righteous people only. That's what Jesus is saying here. He allows even the most evil people in the world to enjoy the benefit of his creation. So we are to imitate that. And that's the Bible verse I was quoting before. John 13 verse 35 says this. Jesus Christ says, by this all men we know that you are my disciples. If you have what church? Love for one another. So when we love church, we are resembling our father who is in heaven. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. Join us today in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.